Friends, this morning we conclude our series that we have been calling The Gathered People. What the church is and what the church does. And I begin the message this morning just by asking you a couple of questions. What direction do you want to go? What type of church do you want to be? Because without a clear vision for the future, you have the propensity to wander aimlessly and you're in danger of landing in the wrong place. Today it seems like there are endless attempts to define what a church is supposed to do. (laughs) Some of these attempts, uh, many of these attempts are well-meaning in their nature. Some of them come from people who are on the inside, people who would call themselves Christians, who attend a local church regularly, who even serve in their local congregation, and they have a clear opinion and idea of this is what the church, and therefore this is what our church should do. Some of these attempts to define what the church should do come from the outside, from a person who's maybe not a Christian, someone who sees the church as a societal institution And therefore says, this is your place in the society. These are the things that you're supposed to do. And I'm going to do the things that I'm supposed to do. And if we work it all out well together, we'll have some form of harmony. And then there are some attempts to define what the church should do from people who are disenfranchised with the church based on their own experience. And they think that you should be disenfranchised as well. And so they say the church shouldn't do this, but it should do this. And that's what a real church is all about. And so as a result, we have churches smattered throughout the Western world that are defined by their musical style or their ethos or their age demographic that they're seeking to reach. Churches that are defined by ethnicity or particular programs or even churches that are defined by architecture. The church that meets in the cathedral or the church that meets in the pub. We have churches that are defined by what they're designed to do in feeding the people who are poor or how they engage in battle of the sex trade or even churches that run the best sports leagues in their town and they're known as the sports church. How does a church decide what it's supposed to do? What informs the list of priorities a church could have? And and what, what helps a church say, there are a lot of really good things we can do versus these are the best things that are necessary for us to do. And it strikes me as I look through the conversation that's happening right now in the Western world and Protestantism and even evangelicalism that there's a lot of good conversations happening around this topic, but at times a very important element is missing from this conversation. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that what the church is informs what a church does. That's what we've been exploring together for the last number of months. We've been exploring together what God says in the Bible a church is. Because once you understand what a church is from God's perspective, then the question of what the most important things a church can do fall into line quite naturally. And so over the past number of months, we've seen 
uh, in this series, The Gathered People, that the church is a people who are redeemed. A group of people that gather together, and when they gather together, their primary function is worship. We've seen the church described as one body with many parts, with Jesus as the head. We've seen the church described as a representative people. The church represents the manifold wisdom of God that's made known to humanity as the gospel is revealed. And in a different way, the church, Christians, you function as ambassadors to God, for God, in the ministry of reconciliation to the world. We've seen the church described as a group of people with leaders, a church of a family who have been adopted into God's family. We've seen the church have a people who are committed to each other. That's why we have membership and we grow in faithfulness to each other and we commit to each other. This is where we're going. And so we become members. We churches that have people who are accountable. And a church is a people who are remembering and reaffirming the gospel. And so with thinking about those descriptions, and we could give many more that the Bible gives and we haven't covered in our series, I want to remind you this morning of the vision statement and the core values of our church, of Old North Church, and connect the dots a little bit. Connect the dots to how what we're trying to do at Old North connects to what God says the church is, as we've explored it over the last number of weeks. And so here's the vision statement of our congregation. The vision of Old North Church is to be a Christ-centered, multi-generational community of disciple-making disciples. Christ-centered, multi-generational community of disciple-making disciples. And we feel that in some ways this captures many of the things that describe, that God describes the church is and what the church is supposed to do. And so how do we go about becoming that community? Well, we have three core values. That we run everything we do through these core values. Biblical teaching and preaching is value number one. Personal and intentional discipleship is value number two. And healthy children and families is value number three. So let me make a couple of connections. Let's connect the dots on how this vision connects to what the church is and what our church, by God's grace, is becoming. The first point of our vision statement is that Old North is to be a Christ-centered people. Over the past number of weeks, we've learned a variety of descriptions of the church, but the most basic of them, the most basic of them is that the church, the universal church, and its local expressions of churches is a gathered people of the redeemed. If you are part of a church family and have put your faith in Jesus, then you've been redeemed. If you're a Christian, you've been purchased by God through the blood of Jesus into his family. Now, we need to make a distinction there because you can go to a church, you can participate in the life of the church, but never put your faith in Christ. (laughs) That doesn't make you redeemed. Redemption is not something that just merely happens to you by way of attendance. It happens to you through faith. And so we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says this. It says, In him, being in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of 
of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so, a couple of simple observations. Redemption happens through the blood of Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross and it means the forgiveness of sins. This is the core of the gospel. That God takes sinners and he transfers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son when they put faith in that son, Jesus, to forgive them. Observation number two, that it is a rich gift of God's grace that is lavished upon those who put faith in him. And I love that phrase, that God lavishes his gift of grace upon us. So many of us think about God as the genie in the bottle where we say, God, if, if you could give me anything, these are the things that I would want. I'd want $100 million. I'd want a better marriage. And I would want first-class vacations for the rest of my life. <laughs> or whatever it might be for you. God, please, please, if you could give me anything, give me health. Give me uh, my material desires. Give me the things that I see right in front of me that are just out of my reach, but I really, really want. That's what we think of when we think of God lavishing his gifts upon us. But what we see here is that the God who could easily give you any of those things gives you something infinitely and eternally more valuable as he lavishes generously his grace upon those who put their faith in his son Jesus. Observation number three is that this lavishing of God's grace upon sinners to be saved this is the very center of God's plan. God, what are you doing in my life? God, what are you doing in the world? God, what is your plan for me, for us, for history, for humanity? And the center of his plan, it says, for the fullness of time <laughs> is to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth, and it happens through this son, Jesus. And so... Therefore, if the church, if Christians are the redeemed, then it would make sense that they would center their communal life on the Redeemer, on Jesus Christ. And hence the phrase, the vision of Old North, is to be Christ-centered. Now that might seem all too obvious to us. After all, we're Christians. But I am sad to say that there are many people who identify as a Christian. There are many churches today that do not have their communal life centered on the Redeemer. <laughs> they're centered maybe on other good things. Maybe they're centered on a, a more vague notion of spirituality or a more general idea of who God is. 
or without even knowing it, in their zeal to engage a certain demographic of the population, maybe they've even become people-centered, conforming the worship of God to simply the desires and preferences of people. But friends, if Jesus is not at the center, if Jesus is not held to the fore, the church can slip into any number of priorities or directions, and it happens all the time. Ed Stetzer wrote an article in the Washington Post a year and a half ago, April 2017, just before Easter Sunday. And the title of the article was 23 Easter's Left. And it looked just simply at the sociology of many of the mainline Protestant denominations and the decline of those denominations. And the point that he was making is that if the statistics continue to bear true, that mainline denominations within Protestantism only have 23 Easter's left to celebrate before they're extinct. Now let me clarify what that means. When he talks about the mainline denominations, he's not talking about all of Protestantism, and he's certainly not talking about evangelicalism. He's talking about historic denominations in our country that at one time were Christ-centered, but have since departed that primary focus in light of having a variety of other points of emphasis. And so these, some of these denominations include the United Methodist Church USA, the Presbyterian Church USA, the American Baptist Church USA. Now there are evangelical Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists. He's just talking about the mainline historic denominations and making an observation. 23 Easter's left. But here's the good news. If you are Christ-centered and you have a church family that is centered on the Redeemer, then you do not have to fear only having 23 Easter's left. In fact, you have more than 23 billion Easter's left. Because those who center on the Redeemer in his words and his works and his ways will celebrate the resurrection of Easter Sunday throughout all of eternity. And that's why, one of the many reasons why we remain Christ-centered. What does this mean practically for us? What does it mean to be a Christ-centered church? Nick, that sounds like a great cliche that you can stamp on to just about anything. But what does it practically mean? Well, it means practically that our teaching and our preaching is Bible-based and gospel-exalting. Jesus himself is called the living word of God, the word made flesh, the scripture, God's revealed word. And so we see that by focusing on Christ, this aims or directs our teaching. There's a lot of different churches you can go to to find five principles to be a better leader or three habits that you can adopt to have more joy in your life. Or if you do these six things, you'll be a better person. There's a lot of moralistic teaching out there that is inspiring in its nature. And it makes you feel good because who doesn't want to be a better person? We all do. But you need to understand that if you're Christ-centered in your nature, and if you're focused on 
the fact of redemption, then this is not a teaching of how I can become a better person by doing these things. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's a recognition that I can't become a better person. I can't overcome my sin on my own. I need a savior to pay for it and to help me and to empower me. And so I focus on the redeemer. (laughs) And when I rely on the redeemer and when I listen to his words and when I seek to obey him and when I trust him, when I fall again, then we see a life change that happens, but it's not by me trying more and doing more. It's by us relying on the Redeemer more. And in that work, lives are changed. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes to a church that's confused in all kinds of things, in all kinds of ways that they're thinking about prioritizing themselves, and he just proclaims as boldly and as clearly as possible, we preach Christ. And that changes everything. What does this practically mean for our music? If the gathering of the people of God is the most important thing that we do, and I think that it is, and music is part of that gathering, this means that in our music we proclaim God's works and God's character, and we know that God's works and God's character have their fullest expression in Christ. (laughs) And so we'll sing about God's works in the Old Testament and in the New, and God's character in the Old Testament and the New, and those will all be crafted in such a way that relates us back to the pinnacle of God's work and character in his son, Jesus. Now, we could do a lot of different things musically. We have really talented volunteers that that play and sing at our church, and we have a really talented pastor who leads them. And so we could could sing uh, traditional music or contemporary music or rock and roll music or jazz music, and I think if you press them hard enough, they could probably figure out a way to even do country music Christian worship style. I know, wouldn't that be horrible? I know, some of you like that sort of thing. But it's not about the style, ultimately. It's about what the music proclaims. What do we sing to God and what do we hear from each other? God's works in his ways and that's what it means to be Christ-centered. It means practically for us to be Christ-centered, that our classes and the ministries that we engage in and support are first and foremost, first and foremost, to help people grow in the gospel. There are a lot of good things that we could do, and even that we do. But the core of what we do is to help people grow in faith and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. We could do more things like the food pantry that we have, where we help people in need, or we could serve people at the rescue mission, or we could engage in medical missions, or we could have a sports outreach, and we do all those things. But the core of what we do is centered on who Jesus is, what Jesus says, and what Jesus did to save us, and how he changes you. That's what it means to be Christ-centered. The second phrase of the vision statement is very intentional as well, and it's worth commenting on. If Old North Church is a Christ-centered, multi-generational community. I have friends uh, who pastor churches 
that are filled with 70 and 80 year olds and no one else. And they convey to me that they're frustrated. They're frustrated that sometimes a young family might move into the area and they might come to their church uh, once, (laughs) but never return. And maybe they haven't, the church family hasn't yet grappled with um, the difficulty in overcoming the reasons why they slipped into a place where their congregation that was really only made up of septuagenarians and octogenarians. They haven't yet reckoned with that. On the flip side, there are churches, there are plenty of churches that you can find that uh, are made up of almost exclusively 20 and 20 to 30 year olds. And they're often characterized by external factors, the type of music they sing or the volume that they sing it at or play it at, or the visual demographics of a place. And the people there may or may not uh, miss people of other age demographics. As when you have a church that's so focused on a narrow age demographic, it really allows uh, the church to cater to your preferences or to produce an experience or a product that you like. Well, at least until you get older, until you're not in your 20s anymore, or at least until you have kids, then the single scene changes, or at least until you get married. (laughs) In either case, on one end or the other, the multi-generational component of a church is missing. And being a multi-generational church here <laughs> is one of, one of my favorite things about Old North Church. It's also one of the hardest things about Old North Church. And you know why it's hard. We've talk, we talk about it. We talk about it with some regularity, at least so we can recognize it. And by recognize it, maybe we can show each other an ongoing sense of grace. Because at the end of the day, when you're, when you're with a bunch of people who aren't like you in all kinds of ways, and then you add layers of generations on top of that, nobody's preferences get met completely. But at the end of the day, we sacrifice our preferences for three reasons. We sacrifice our preferences because we realize that worship in the church isn't about us. It's about God. We sacrifice our preferences because we've experienced the value of having all of the generations together. That there's great value when older and middle-aged and young are all interacting together. And we learn from those who are three steps down the path, either positively or negatively. Somebody says, I've been following Jesus faithfully for 60 years. (laughs) And this is what it looks like. Or, I didn't follow Jesus faithfully for the first 55 years of my life, and by God's grace in the last 20 He saved me, and I have. Or this is what a faithful Christian marriage looks like over time. In an age where divorce is exploding all around us, this is what consistency looks like and how it lasts. And on and on down the line, and we value having young families and young people in our midst because we see 
the wonderful things that God is doing in them and through them and the unique perspectives they have in the world around us and it helps us to grow in ministers of the gospel. The third reason why we set our preferences aside for the sake of a multi-generational community is because we see the scriptures describe the church family as having both older and younger generations. Do you notice that, right? That it doesn't prescribe a certain percentage, but it just assumes that this happens. <laughs> and so we read things like Titus chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 5, and this has something for every one of you in the room who claims to be a Christian. Titus chapter 2, 2 to 6. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. How are you doing, older men, in that? Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so to train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. How are you doing at that, older women? Likewise, he says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. <laughs> A struggle of so many younger men. Or 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Author Oz Guinness argues that God can use and has used people magnificently in their youth, and at the very same time, he often saves his best work to be done through people who have been seasoned with years. And he expresses it this way. It is said that gymnasts are old at 20. <laughs> Boxers at 35. Cricketers and baseball players at 40. Yet doctoral students are old at 30, while young as professors at 31. <laughs> Novelists, we are told, do their best work in their 20s and 30s, whereas painters are still young in their 40s. Most leaders of great revivals and awakenings were under the age of 30, but many of the greatest leaders of nations have been in their 80s. Golda Meir only became the prime minister of Israel at the age of 80. In short, the way of excellence and contentment is to be our utmost for God and his, for his highest at whatever age you are at. Another truth that we tend to forget is that many things in life are better with age. The foolishness of the 1960s slogan, don't trust anyone over 30, was upended by Thomas Oden's brilliant quip, don't trust anyone under 300. When Andras Schaff, the virtuoso Hungarian pianist, played his 60th birthday concert in London, England, he chose to perform Beethoven's Diabelli Variations. He had waited until he was 50, he said, to play Beethoven's 32 sonatas. 
And only after he had performed 20 complete cycles of the sonatas would he dare to move on to the Diabelli variations. It's the most wonderful, the most colorful composition Beethoven ever wrote. I cannot understand pianists who are 20 years old and they immediately play that piece. It cannot be serious. Another pianist, Arthur Schnabel, remarked similarly, Mozart sonatas are too easy for children and too difficult for adults. You get the point. Young, middle-aged, older. We need each other. (laughs) And in one body that makes up many parts with Jesus as the head, there's room for each other. And so we actively minister to each age demographic in this congregation. And we encourage as much as we can, as much as we can, the cross-pollination of age demographics. That in our small groups, in our adult small groups and adult classes, that primarily we want people who are in their 18 to 24s and in their 30s and in their 40s and in their 50s and in their 60s and in their 70s and in their 80s and in their 90s. And if you're over the age of 100, we'll come to you. We do as much multi-generational interaction as we can because the value is so great. Of course, there's some age-specific things along interest lines or cognitive ability in the back with young children and students. But, 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 But you see the point, right? What the church is informs what the church does. The fact that God made the church this way informs how we approach the ministry of the church. Lastly, the last phrase I want to talk about for the next couple of minutes is the final phrase of the vision statement, and that is Old North is a multi-generational, Christ-centered, multi-generational community of disciple-making disciples. Disciple-making disciples. It's First, it feels like an odd expression, doesn't it? Disciple-making disciples. But the more you think about it, the more you read your Bible, the more you see the examples of Scripture and history, it's not all that odd. In fact, what you start to see is that to be a healthy and faithful disciple, that you will be making other disciples. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus, to grow in faithfulness to him. And Jesus commands his disciples to make other disciples. And in this, the family of God grows. More and more people experience the love of God. More and more experience the lavishing of the riches of his grace. And the kingdom of God expands in this world. All the while, the disciple, who now has become a disciple maker, gets to experience something that they have never experienced before. (laughs) Up close and personal interaction with the life-changing work of the Heavenly Father in the life of another person. There's a number of scriptures that we can point to to talk about this dynamic and to encourage you toward it. I list just one this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. This is a passage that we have taught in a variety of different venues at our church, and it says this. The mystery 
hidden for, age, for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Here's the disciple-making piece. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Let's make a few observations. God makes the riches of his glory known to Christians. (laughs) We've heard that already this morning. Secondly, that these riches are included for all ethnicities, Jews and Gentiles alike. Thirdly, that the riches of God are expressed in his son, Jesus. And this means, therefore, that the call for the disciple is to proclaim, to warn, to teach. In short, we're supposed to tell others about the riches of God's glory in Jesus so they can experience those same riches as well. That's disciple-making. The goal is that they too would become mature and be presented to Jesus on the final day. Why is it important that they mature? Why don't we just say, let's tell as many people about the gospel as we can, we'll leave it at that, and we'll never walk them down the path of growing in maturity. Why? Why is that important? It's important for a lot of different reasons, but just the plain obvious observation is that adolescence is ugly. (laughs) That immaturity is so often selfish and ill-defined and and if you are stuck in immaturity forever, what a a terrible thing for somebody. (laughs) Not a great thing for somebody. And so... That challenges you to grow toward maturity, to do the things that are required of you to do that, number one. But number two, to help walk others down that very same path because there is a final day that's coming. And here's the last observation from Colossians 1. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. The observation is that this goal is worth giving your life to. The disciple-making endeavor is worth toiling over for all of your days. And that God, from his supply, gives you everything you need to do it. Whether you are in any number of career fields, whether you have any number of interest areas, whether you are in any number of social circles, that the call for the Christian is to give his life to this disciple-making endeavor. And so the questions that naturally birth out of this are, uh, are you growing as a disciple yourself? And I think that's part of the problem, is that so many of us feel like I could never make another disciple because I'm not growing myself in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Well, how do you do that? You grow by getting to know him better and by following him more faithfully. (laughs) The measure of your growth is faithfulness. And so... You sit under the teaching of God's word like you're doing right now. You you engage in opportunities with other believers with the word of God open. You pursue obedience to the words of Jesus in your life. You seek to serve him where there's opportunity. 
I get so tired of people who, who knock on Christians who just go to church on Sunday. Or, oh, those Christians, they're just going to another Bible study and doing a holy huddle. As if that's somehow the tack-on thing that Christians are supposed to do. Christians go to church on Sunday because in worshiping the king of the universe together and hearing from his word, their lives are changed forever. (laughs) That one of the most important things, if not the most important thing we do, is gather together for that very, very purpose. And there's a logic behind it. The logic is this, as it relates to disciple-making. If the worship of God for his works and his ways is the greatest goal of Christian ministry, and I think that it is, worshiping God is the greatest goal of Christian ministry, then disciple-making is the logical end of Christian ministry. If the worship of God is the greatest goal, then disciple-making is the logical end because if God is the most valuable and the riches of his glory are that vast and that magnificent and that he lavishes them upon those who have faith in his son in such a way that they will never ever be the same, then the sharing of these riches to others who have not yet experienced them bring an even greater glory to the gift giver. Disciple making is the logical end of worship of God. The worship of God drives the disciple-making endeavor. And if you lack the desire to make disciples in your own life, as so many of us do, then I would challenge you to reconsider the nature of your worship. Because something is missing. Here's another question. Practically speaking, if God calls disciples to be disciple makers, have you started to invest in other people for the same endeavor? What does that even look like to make disciples? Nobody ever trained you to do that. Nobody. What is a disciple again? Oh yeah, a follower of Jesus who's growing in faithfulness to him. Well, what does it look like to start investing in other people? The first part is the other people thing. <laughs> That you can't just be a disciple maker if you're not engaging other people. And some of this happens in just conversations with God, with with people that God has placed in your midst that maybe even aren't even Christians yet. Discipling can happen even before somebody is converted. That you start talking about serious things. And that serious thing begins moving toward a conversation about the most important things. Because you're investing in somebody's life, and they're investing in your life, and of course they're going to want to know about the most important things in your life. And if the most important things in your life are about God, then why wouldn't you communicate with them what the most important things are? Now, I know, I know it's not polite to talk about religion and politics in, in mixed company, but, but that's all a bunch of hogwash. You start talking about the most important things in your life, what God is doing. And from there, by God's grace, you have more conversations. Maybe there's some questions. Maybe you have the opportunity to open the Bible. And maybe over the course of days or weeks or even months that a conversation with a friend turns into a spiritual endeavor that turns into God calling that person to repent of their sins and they put their faith in Jesus. And from there, you don't want to leave them immature, do you? Adolescence can be ugly business. How are you growing in following Jesus? 
How are you growing in pursuing faithfulness to him? You walk that person right down the same path that you're going on. Except you're a little bit farther down the path. And so you tell him, don't step in that pothole. <laughs> Go this way instead. And by God's grace, now you're discipling somebody. This includes evangelism. It includes Christian growth. And we use the phrase all the time around here, transfer and transform, right? That's God's agenda for the world, to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness to his son. That's salvation, conversion, redemption. (laughs) And transform them into the likeness of his son. That's the process of Christian growth and sanctification. How does the community around here help you do that? Well, the community at Old North helps you do that in a variety of ways. The two most basic are sitting under biblical teaching and preaching ourselves, that we would become better disciples by knowing who God is and what God does and how to follow him faithfully. And secondly, that we offer with with great regularity practical training pieces. We know that some of this doesn't come natural to you, that part of the ethos of Old North Church is a training church. Some of you are taking advantage of those trainings. Some of you aren't. I would encourage more of you to. So we do things like uh, six steps to loving your church. That's not just a class to do on Sunday. That's a training for you. How do you minister to other Christians well when you're with them in the community of God? We do things like evangelism training, whether it's two ways to live or others. We have trainings on specific topics or framework ideas. Human sexuality in the world today, Pastor Marty and Pastor Dan did a training on that. Not just to tickle the fancies of your mind, but to help you engage effectively in the world around you and on down the line. So look for training opportunities that are ever before you because what the church is informs what the church does. And what we've seen is that the church It's a gathered people, it's redeemed people, it's a worshiping people, it's one body with many parts, it's a representative people, it's a people who have leaders, it's a people who are uh, committed to one another, and so there's members, it's a people who are adopted into a family, it's a people who are accountable, people who are remembering and reaffirming of the gospel. And so because we're redeemed, we're Christ-centered, and we become disciples and followers, Because we're one body with many parts, we're multi-generational. And because we're representatives of God, we become disciple makers along the way. What the church is informs what the church does. I wonder if you've ever seen a picture of a Boeing 747 Dreamlifter. Isn't that an interesting looking airplane? The Dreamlifter is a modified airplane that can haul almost more cargo. I say almost because Airbus just made a beluga, which is a little bit bigger. More cargo than any other plane in the world. And this airplane weighs 600,000 pounds. Do you imagine that? It usually requires a runway of 9,200 feet But in November of 2013, a wayward Dreamlifter missed its intended destination of McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas. Instead, the jumbo cargo plane landed nine miles north at the wrong airport, the city-owned airport of Jabara. And Jabara has no control tower and a runway that is only 6,100 feet long. Spokesperson at McConnell Air Force Base, the right airport, (laughs) said, the tower was in contact with the pilot, 
But the guy had no clue where he was landing. The pilot told the McConnell radio tower, apparently, uh, we, uh, apparently we landed at Beach Factory Airport, which was a third airport in between the airport he landed at and the airport that he was supposed to go to. Eventually, it all got sorted out. The pilot uh, finally figured out which airport, which wrong airport he landed at. The Air Force sent out a bunch of people, uh, number one, to fly the plane who knew where to land it correctly, and number two, to remove most of the cargo off the airplane so it could get light enough to take off on the shortened runway. And the plane was on its way back to McConnell, the right airport. You know, it's a shame when a church moves around aimlessly, doing good things but not the most important things. When they're not sure where they're actually supposed to land as a community of believers. Friends, we need not simply engage in a bunch of good things that may or may not get us to an intended destination when the Bible so clearly points out to us the most necessary things. Making disciples who make disciples. The vision of Old North is to be a Christ-centered, multi-generational community of disciple-making disciples. And I pray that as you continue to grow, and as we continue to grow, that we grow into this biblical definition. So let's pray and ask God for that very thing. Father, I thank you that we are not left to figure out what the church is supposed to be or the church is supposed to do. I thank you through the many descriptions of the local church and its value to you in the Bible and the direct commands of Jesus and the example of the apostles that we can see so clearly that how you have organized this group of people actually informs what this group of people is supposed to do. God, we thank you that you have lavished your good gifts upon us. That with all of the things that you could have given us, that you give us the greatest thing, your grace to the Son, Jesus. Help us to be a community that worships you well in our gatherings, in our disciple-making, and in every aspect of our life, we pray. Amen.